The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again this morning and uh, to have the opportunity to deliver the most important lecture of the week, the uh, apologetics of Van Til. I would just like to stress that um, uh, this week you're going to be hearing, uh, especially in the Apologetics of series running throughout the morning, uh, different perspectives. And part of the goal of being here uh, is not to uniformity in our thinking. It doesn't, in order to have unity, it doesn't mean we need to have uniformity. You're not here to agree with me or to agree with one particular, lectu- uh, particular lecturer. We're here to think and to reflect about these issues, and at times that involves being challenged in our thinking. Now, you may not agree with everything, but that's okay. We can still be challenged to think uh, as God wants us to think. Now, that means that we, if we're believers and we believe in God, that God has spoken through his word, that we take what we hear and we assess it as believers in the light of Scripture, in the light of God's word. And so that's, the, that's part of the challenge of this week. So please, if something is said during any of the lectures or during, during Q, Q&A time, don't get upset and offended, unless it's the Holy Spirit who's offending you, that's okay. Uh, instead, take the things on board, reflect on them in terms of God's word, and bring them before God, and that's how we grow and learn. And it may be that in the end you will disagree with some of the things you've hear, heard. It may be that you come to a point of agreement. That's part of the purpose of any training so that we uh, grow and learn to reflect and think critically ourselves. So uh, in what I'm saying this morning about the apologetics of Van Til, I'm representing for you as faithfully as I can what Van Til taught about apologetics. Uh, I happen to agree, for the most part, with what Van Til has to say. And uh, so I will be happy to interact with you on that issue uh, afterwards during Q&A and throughout the rest of the week. Let's start by reading God's Word together from uh, the Gospel of John. I just want to read John's Gospel, not right through, but just from chapter 7. John chapter 7, and first of all, reading from verse 15. I've got two short passages to read to you. First, John 7, reading from verse 15 through to verse 18. And this is what uh, we read. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied, referring to Jesus, of course. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him There is no falsehood. And then turning over to John chapter 8. I want to read a slightly lengthier passage here. John 8, reading from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. And try and soak this in. John uh, John 8, verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. Listen to the content of Jesus' words. Again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, 
Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I have come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you. I, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but just speak as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. We'll leave it there. I think it's important uh, that we reflect on what Jesus has to say in his own defense, when his authority is challenged as it consistently was. And I think it's an appropriate backdrop to speak about the apologetics of Van Til. Cornelius Van Til was a Dutchman. He was born in Holland uh, in uh, 1895, and he was the sixth son of a dairy farmer. Now again, there are extensive notes going to be provided for you at the end of this session, So it's helpful if you take notes as we go along, but don't panic about quotations and some of the detail. It will be given to you uh, in the notes. When he was 10 years old, his family moved to the United States, to Indiana, and there he was a quick study in English. And as part of the Christian Reformed Church, which was made up largely of Dutch immigrants, he attended in 1914 Calvin Preparatory School in Grand Rapids, And then he went on to study at Calvin College and then Calvin Theological Seminary, where he later transferred to Princeton Theological Seminary, which back in those days was an orthodox uh, Calvinistic establishment. And then as a graduate student of philosophy at Princeton, he was awarded his doctorate in philosophy after he completed his seminary work. In 1926, he did get married to his childhood sweetheart. And in 1927, he did complete his Ph.D., Uh, Van Til studied under the likes of Louis Burkhoff. I remember reading Louis Burkhoff myself at Theological College. Uh, He is a tough read, but um, he is in the Dutch Reformed tradition. And Louis Burkhoff very much gave Van Til an appreciation for the Dutch Reformed tradition. He was also especially impacted by the thinking and the work of the Dutchman Abraham Kuyper. He was a very influential 
thinker, not just an influential thinker, a Christian leader. In fact, he served for a short time as the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. And at the very heart of Abraham Kuyper's thought was the lordship of Christ over every field of human thought and every field of human endeavor. Herman Bavink, who was a contemporary of Kuyper, also was one of uh, Van Til's key influences. And while he was teaching at Princeton, uh, Gerhardus Voss, a fellow Dutchman, fellow professor, became a very good friend of his and certainly influenced his systematic theology. Of course, being at Princeton, Benjamin Warfield and Charles Hodge in that uh, traditional reformed uh, position were very influential in the life of uh, Van Til. Now, some people relate uh, very much the thinking of Van Til to Doeverd, the other Dutchman in the Doeverdian school uh, in Holland, and there are certainly similarities to their approach. It's important to recognize, though, if you are a student in this area, that Van Til very much developed his thought independent of Doeverd, and they later came to interact. Uh, they did have certain uh, very important points of agreement, and then there were points of divergence in their thinking later on, but it's certainly fair to say that in the post-1930s, uh, Van Til's thinking was uh, influenced by the, the uh, philosophical school of Doeverd. For those of you who don't know um, about uh, Van Til's teaching career very quickly, he was offered the chair of apologetics at Princeton um, in 1929, having taught there for about a year, but he was strongly opposed to the reorganization of Princeton on very liberal grounds under the Presbyterian Assembly. And uh, some of you will have heard of the noted New Testament professor, uh, J. Gresham Machen, who was a uh, professor at Princeton, also was opposed to the reorganization of the seminary, and along with other faculty members, launched a new seminary at that time, which became known as Westminster Theological Seminary. It was to stay in the tradition of Charles Hodge, and uh, Benjamin Warfield at uh, the Calvinistic tradition. So they separated off, and uh, Machen was very keen to get Van Til on board as professor of apologetics, but at that time, uh, uh, Van Til was simply pastoring a local church. He loved pastoring. Uh, he was pastoring up in uh, uh, Lake Michigan, actually. And uh, he resisted the call, but uh, Machen kept on at him to become professor of apologetics, and he eventually uh, surrendered to the invitation, and he remained there till his retirement in 1972. Um, to talk about Van Til's scholarly works, which you could have access to, would take a great deal of time, but the ones which perhaps most concern us today would be his book, The Defense of the Faith. These will be in your notes. A Christian Theory of Knowledge. Christian Apologetics, his Introduction to Systematic Theology, his Christian Theistic e uh, Ethics, and Christian Theistic Evidences. All of these uh, volumes, Van Til was a prolific writer, but the arrangement of his material is quite confusing. So if you want a, uh, a good introduction to Van Til, actually it's probably best to go to somebody like John Frame or Greg Barnson first and then uh, come to Van Til's Christian Apologetics. Uh, because he is, he is difficult to read. And this session will be quite difficult with some of the quotations because he uses very involved language. He uses some of the terminology of idealist philosophy. But actually, his apologetic is remarkably simple. Uh, other people have since articulated Van Til's thought in a much more simple fashion. Now, much could be said about Van Til as a person. In fact, I've discovered uh, uh, even these last few days that somebody here actually um, uh, communicated uh, with... Uh, 
wrote to, to uh, back and, uh, to and fro with Vans Hill. Uh, he was a gracious and a very charming man by all accounts. I think it's important to know something about a person when you're studying their thought. And to those who knew him best, they said he was generous with his time and his attention to students. He was as happy visiting the sick in hospital as he was talking about theology with the professors. And uh, his, his brilliant mind didn't detract from his interpersonal skills and relationship and the time that he gave to students. And that was the hallmark of his uh, teaching career. But Van Til, uh, some of you may not have even come across his name. And uh, the reason for that is he remains, he remains something of an outsider, even in intellectual circles today. And part of the reason for that is that he did set himself over and against, polemically, uh, all forms of neo-orthodoxy. He wrote polemically about Arminianism. He wrote polemically about Roman Catholicism. He absolutely shredded Karl Barth in the most gracious possible fashion. Um, <laughs> And uh, so, because of the way he approached things, Van Til, in his own time, was not the most popular of people. And uh, he, he, he remained in the, in, a, in the Reformed Church, a very small portion of the Reformed Church in America, so he, his thought wasn't widely diffused. In fact, it's been more brought to the fore and popularized by people since Van Til, like uh, John Frame, who's now at Reformed Theological Seminary, and the late uh, Dr. Greg Barnson, who, uh, in my opinion... Uh, really took Van Til's apologetic to the streets, as it were, and took it into university campuses right across the United States and into other parts of the world. And if you've never heard Greg Barnson, any of his debates or any of his lectures, I really strongly recommend that you do. Uh, he died, sadly, in his mid-40s of a heart condition, very prematurely, great loss to the Christian community, to be honest. In, in fact, I've listened to a lot of Christian debaters and Christian apologists, in my view, he was the finest debater of uh, the latter part of the 20th century. Absolutely brilliant thinker. Anyway, in terms of assessing Van Til's importance uh, and his insights, people like Schaefer, who we're going to hear about later on in the week, was greatly indebted to Van Til. In fact, uh, what Schaefer has to say about the Trinity is straight out of Van Til. And uh, this is what John Frame uh, says. Uh, he's a professor at a Reformed Theological Seminary about Van Til's place in history. He says, If Kant taught the world of secular unbelief the essentials of its own theory of knowledge, Van Til did the same for the Christian. As Kant said, we must avoid any trace of the attitude of bowing before an external authority. So Van Til th uh, taught that the only way to find truth at all is to bow before God's authoritative scripture. As Kant presented his view transcendentally as the inescapable, ultimate presupposition of human thought, so Van Til made and defended the same claim for the revelation of God, that God's word is the only presupposition that does not destroy the intelligibility of human thought. Because of Van Til, we can at last define the essential and philosophical differences between the Christian and the non-Christian worldviews. If Kant's achievement makes him the most important secular philosopher of modern times, should we not say that Van Til's achievement makes him the most important Christian thinker of modern time? That's, of course, John Frame's opinion, but uh, I think it's a valuable one. Van Til's view of apologetics then was that it was the, the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against all forms of non-Christian philosophy. And just to sum up, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw at you two or three quotations now uh, from Van Til just to give you a general picture of the way he's approaching it. And then we will select four or five uh, key themes from Van Til and try and unpack them 
in as meaningful and understandable a way as possible, if understandable is actually a word, I'm not sure. This is what uh, 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 Vantil writes. Instead of trying to prove the truth of Christianity to the unregenerate, it assumes its truth at the outset and then challenges the natural man by demonstrating that on his presuppositions nothing is true, nothing could be accounted for, and his own thinking is invalid. So that's what we might call the indirect method. That's the angle that he's taking. So Van Til tries to show then that through an internal critique of other worldviews, we can show that without the presupposition of the God of Scripture, human thought is reduced to absurdity. It's reduced to futility. It's reduced to vanity, as we see articulated in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's what the Apostle Paul consistently insists on uh, in the New Testament. So the Christian apologist reasons by presupposition on the ontological trinity. That's the doctrine of God in Scripture. That's our starting point and the scriptures as the necessary precondition of meaningful or intelligible human thought, the technical terms being uh, predication um, and intelligibility. I'll skip that page. Excuse me, I have a lot of notes here, but I'm just going to thumb through them a bit as we're going along. Now, this is what Van Til, he tried to draw a picture uh, of what... uh, the natural man thinking without God what his situation was like. In other words, in a realm that is not created and governed and controlled by God, Van Til tried to paint for us a picture of how futile the natural man's thinking actually was. And this is what he says. Suppose we think of a man made of water in an infinitely extended and bottomless ocean of water. Desiring to get out of water, he makes a ladder of water. He sets this ladder upon the water and against the water and then attempts to climb out of the water. So hopeless and senseless a picture must be drawn of the natural man's methodology based as it is upon the assumption that time and chance is ultimate. On his assumption, his own rationality is a product of chance. On his assumption, even the laws of logic which he employs are products of chance or chaos more properly. When the rationality and purpose that he may be searching for are still bound to be products of chance. Christian theism, which was first rejected because of its supposed authoritarian character, is seen as the only position which which gives human reason a field for successful operation and true progress in knowledge. So he states essentially this, or actually Rushduni states regarding Van Til's apologetic. He says this, the Christian should begin his thinking, thinking consciously committed, sorry, consciously committed to reasoning systematically on the presupposition of the ontological trinity, the self-contained God, whose infallibly inspired final revelation to man is scripture. That's what uh, is the essence of Van Til's starting point in apologetics. And he's saying, if unless we do that, we end up with absurdity at every turn. And this is what uh, Van Til again writes as the uh, crucial difference in character between non-Christian reasoning and Christian reasoning. He says this, The autonomous man, that's a man being a law to himself, will not allow that reality is already structural in nature by virtue of the structural activity of God's eternal plan. Now, I'm going to unpack these things. I said I'm throwing these quotes at you to try and give you a broad sense of where Van Til is coming from. 
But if reality is non-structural in nature, then man is the one who for the first time, and therefore in an absolutely original fashion, is supposed to bring structure into reality. But such a structure can only be for him. For in the nature of the case, man cannot himself, as a finite and conditioned being, control the whole of reality. But all this amounts only to saying that modern philosophy is quite consistent with its own principles when it contends that in all man knows, he gives as well as takes. This is the final point of it. It is merely the non-rational that is given to him. He himself rationalizes it for the first time. And so that which appears to him as rationally related is so related because he himself has rationalized it. What he's saying here is that unless we accept that God creates, governs, controls reality, and there's a pre-interpreted schema by which we understand the facts, who is rationalizing reality? Men and women. And they are doing so in an absolutely original fashion. They are coming to the so-called facts or the particulars of reality, and they are trying to construct reality for themselves. So that is... Uh, in very broad brushstrokes with a few quotations, throwing at you something of Van Til's thought. Now, what was he keen to point out? He was keen to show that there is a difference between the methods of Paul and the method of Plato. That there is a distinction between the method of Jerusalem and the method of Athens. You remember Tertullian's famous quote, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? Van Til was keen to distinguish what was different about Paul and what was different in terms of his, uh, his view and the Greeks' ideas. See, for the Greeks, man was the measure of all things. That is humanism in its essence. Man as the final determiner of all truth. Human beings as their final criterion for what is true. In other words, the ultimate court of appeal for Plato, for Aristotle, was not God, but man. Man decides... Man, by his reflection, by his authority alone, tries to bring fact out there and the laws of his mind, logic, into relationship with each other. But for Paul, it was not uh, man, but God who is the final referent in knowledge. And he tells us that human depravity and suppression of the truth means that the natural man's perspective is never a suitable basis for a defense of the faith. There is no comprehensive knowledge for man. I'm sure John Lennox has been talking to you about induction. Induction being uh, moving from the particular to the general. But when 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 you do inductive reasoning, you only need one contrary instance to pull down your whole theory. So if I were to say, I've lived in Canada now for two years and I think all uh, swans in Canada are white, and that's my inductive conclusion, then only one thing needs to happen, that I would be driving home from work one day, and uh, as I'm uh, coming home, I see a black swan flying flying amidst the white ones. And because because I do not uh, have a comprehensive knowledge of the whole of reality, all my knowledge is inductive. It's not certain. So with an inductive method, uh, man can never have a comprehensive knowledge. But of course, the God of Scripture has a comprehensive knowledge for the Apostle Paul, and that is why he must be the starting point for us. For Paul the Apostle, there are two levels of knowing. There's God's knowing, and there's man's method of knowing. And Paul instructs us in Scripture that our knowledge is to be, as I said last night, receptive and reconstructive, not original. 
What does Romans 11 verse 36 say? For of him and through him and to him are all things. Everything is from God, through his agency, through his creative power, and to him, in him we live and move and exist. That means that for the Apostle Paul, all human knowledge is dependent in the end on God's original knowledge. Not as in Greek thought, in terms of recollections through uh, endless reincarnations, some sort of contact with the eternal realm of forms and archetypes and so on and so forth. But for Paul, God confronts man in his creation at every point. And that means that for the Apostle Paul, God's word is not a hypothesis among many other words. This is a very, very important point. Scripture and Jesus himself... We've read a a large chunk there from the Gospel of John. Does Jesus present his word as a hypothesis among all kinds of other words? Does he appeal to other authorities beyond and outside of himself that requires the support of other experts to justify the claims of Christ? You see, it's somewhat arrogant in terms of Paul's worldview that he should ask whether God is admissible as a hypothesis on the basis of principles which are senseless without God. So along comes man and he says, on the basis of logic and reason and facts, I'm not sure that God is a reasonable hypothesis. And yet, Paul is saying, without God, there is no fact, reason, logic, and, and sense or meaning in anything. The fear of the Lord, Scripture says, is the very beginning of wisdom. And that's why it would seem, uh, when you f- initially read the writer of the Hebrews, as we saw last night, that he has, has he not got the cart before the horse? As we look, for example, in Acts chapter 17, in Paul's method of reasoning with the philosophers, he does not attempt to build a kind of pagan natural theology with neutral principles and somehow then win people round from a Greek perspective to the possibility that God is a is maybe a more probable uh, hypothesis than, you know, an ultimate impersonalism. In fact, Paul, in Acts 17, as he, as he speaks to the Athenians, the philosophers of the time, sets out the basic doctrines of Christianity and of Scripture, doesn't he? He talks about creation. He talks about God's sovereignty. He talks about God's control over history. He talks about human beings' dependence upon God for everything. And then he culminates his address in the fact of a final judgment. In fact, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, now listen to the evidences for the resurrection, and on that basis, is it not probable as a historical event that Christianity might need to have a hearing? Does that mean it's illegitimate to reason on the basis of evidences for the resurrection? No, not at all. But for Van Til, you can't reason about the resurrection and historical eventuation, that is, historical facts, unless you recognize that those facts are seen within the context of an overall worldview. No Christian talks about the resurrection outside of the Christian worldview. Because we believe God is capable of acting in history. That's why God, uh, Paul says to the king in one section of the book of Acts, I forget where off the top of my head now, why should it seem impossible to you, O king, that God should raise the dead? For the Greeks, the whole idea of God raising a physical body from the dead was an absurd idea. So he doesn't argue simply on, on the basis of probabilities but by appealing to rationality and logic and so on and so forth. And so Van Til was keen to point out that when you look at the methods of the ancient Greeks... Uh, uh, and you look at the method of Paul, you see a, a huge distinction. 
Now, with notable exceptions like Ambrose, Tertullian, Augustine, and Anselm, and then John Calvin, actually the majority report in Christian apologetics throughout Christian history has actually been a kind of scholasticism. That is the attempt to wed Greek thought with Christianity. And so many of the ancient apologists, even in the early church, were very concerned about how to, make, how to wed Hellenistic Greek thought or, uh, uh, or Greek philosophy with Christianity. That's known as scholasticism, and that's what is classically attempted by Thomas Aquinas. Now, Van Til represents a very distinct break from that. So if you want to understand where Van Til kind of fits in here, he represents a break from that uh, scholastic approach. A method actually that's exemplified within Roman Catholicism with a fairly low view of scripture, a high view of man's fallen capacity in terms of reason and moral capability and his contribution to salvation and so on. And that spills over in the Roman Catholic method of trying to establish the truth of Christianity. What did Augustine say? I believe in order that I may understand. And Van Til stands in that vein of thought saying that faith, belief, uh, uh, comes before rationality and reason. In fact, all reason presupposes faith of some kind. So Van Til's concern, if you want to try and understand what his uh, motivation was, I think, as I understand him, uh, in terms of his development of an apologetic system, was that our apologetic method should be consistent with our theology. And more than that, even, our apologetic method should be consistent with our conclusions. You see, if we want people to arrive at the conclusion as Christians, don't we, that God uh, in Christ has created, sustains, governs all reality, and that Christ is Lord over all men and over all creation, and that that is truth, he says, how can we start off by allowing the natural man to think that Christ is merely a potential hypothesis, and in the end, it's only slightly more probable than other possibilities? That Christ is not the necessary foundation for all thought, but actually what we must do is look at the facts and look at uh, evidences and look at logic and in a neutral fashion then say that an autonomous, fallen reason can then reason its way through to an antithetical, totally different conclusion. Start with the idea that God, Christ may or may not be the creator, sustainer and redeemer of the world and conclude with the idea that he is. Now, Van Til uh, said that these th- this, is, this is incompatible, this is not consistent, and it's not consistent with uh, the conclusion we want people to reach. And uh, as we read the claims of Christ, I think that becomes clear. Now, first one then, the first of his key themes, neutrality. Neutrality. One of Van Til's key themes is to discuss the whole idea of neutrality. Neutrality, he says, is the mark of the metaphysical relativist. That is, that the idea of neutrality is already a biased position. The idea that you can have a real neutrality, he says, in reasoning is impossible. Neutrality, he says, presupposes the idea of an open universe. This is what Van Til says. If if the universe is open, the facts new to God and man constantly issue from the womb of possibility. These new facts will constantly reinterpret the meaning of the old. What he's saying then is in that kind of a world, God and man are limited to the same position. In other words, we have to wait and see what the facts are going to bring. We have to wait and see what's going to come up. God cannot interpret the meaning of reality to man in an open universe since he has not yet interpreted reality for himself. If God hasn't pre-interpreted reality for himself, unless he knows and governs, 
then of course God is in the same position as you and I. If this universe is a place of pure possibility, that is, it's an open universe where anything can happen, then God is in a position where he can't actually even speak into creation authoritatively because he doesn't know what may happen. God's reasoning process, then, is reduced to that of man's. His reasoning process uh, is creative and constructive as he rationalizes the facts for the first time. That's man's position in terms of his reasoning because no ultimate scheme pre-exists. That is, there is no ultimate plan of God with respect to all of history. God is not relating the facts one to the other because he doesn't control it and govern it if the universe is open in that sense. And so not only would the doctrine of God's revelation, how can God prophesy? How can God speak an absolute word into history and say, this is what is going to happen unless he governs reality? You see, the whole idea of revelation would then be impossible. Also, the idea of absolute truth would equally be impossible. In fact, no certain knowledge would be possible because even God doesn't know what might occur that is going to inductively alter his theory of reality. Maybe God doesn't realize that all swans aren't white because he doesn't have full exposure to the facts because he doesn't govern them all. You see how God, then, if he's reduced to an inductive method, as we are in our reasoning, cannot be the absolute God of Scripture. But the Christian, Van Til says, can't pretend he's neutral. He cannot pretend to neutrality. Our view of, God of, of the God of Scripture means that I, as a Christian, and I wrestled with this as a Christian apologist, believe me, I felt like I had to, in an engagement with a non-believer, try and pretend I was neutral and I was just looking at the facts and you know, analyzing thing in terms of things in terms of logic and then make out to them that that's what they were trying to do as well. But I knew full well I had a pre-commitment to Christ's lordship. And that I believed that Christ is Lord. In the sovereign, all-controlling plan of God, all the facts are available because scripture says he knows the end from the beginning. Nothing is unknown to God. This is what Van Til states, and I quote, He, that's Christian man, admits the facts may, uh, that facts may emerge that are new to man. He knows they are not new to God. History is but the expression of the purpose of God. As far as the space-time universe is concerned, the category of interpretation precedes that of existence. Man's interpretation must therefore, to be correct, correspond to the interpretation of God. In other words, man's synthesis and man's analysis rest upon God's analysis. Strictly speaking, man's method of investigation is that of analysis of God's analysis. We are to think God's thoughts after him. We don't come to this world in an original fashion and create it in our own image, as in post-Kantian thought. So central to Van Til's thinking is this insight that metaphysical relativism, that is, it's an open universe, implies neutrality, or pretended neutrality, and vice versa. The only route to this so-called neutrality, he says, in reasoning requires that the universe is open to God and man, and in such an instance, knowledge itself is destroyed. But if God is creator and sustainer, then for God, all the facts are in. He's not like you and me, uh, limited to an inductive method. Neutrality must assume that a system is non-existent. And if this is true, then it's clear that God himself is within the universe. He becomes the God of process theology. He's relative to the world. He is conditioned by the world. That is, God is affected and he's playing a guessing game. He is, he is not the all-conditioner. 
of Scripture, but he becomes conditioned by the world itself. Now, I know that for many of us, when we start, uh, for me, this was something of a revolution in my thinking because I was so accustomed to thinking in terms of I'm following the facts wherever they lead. As though fact and meaning can be separated. And so it's difficult sometimes to reorient ourselves. Metaphysical relativity then, or an open universe, is a prior commitment. An open universe that assumes neutral. So in other words, when somebody says you need to reason neutrally, and we need to look at this just in terms of the bare facts and logic and so on and so forth, they already have a pre-commitment that there is no absolute God. Because the universe is open. So to even start the reasoning process like that, Van Til says, is to deny the truth of Christianity. From the outset. This concept then of neutrality assumes that there are brute facts or pure facts. That is uninterpreted fact. An uninterpreted fact, of course, is impervious to real interpretation. It just becomes a psychological quality that you impose some kind of meaning on the irrational particulars by abstract laws in your mind. So the Van Til said, look, the Christian should never take this stance and should never admit that the non-believer is without bias. That is why Canada frustrates me so much when it says that talks about the secular world and we can't mix religion and the uh, religion and the state and so on and so forth. The state is religious. All human thought presupposes religious pre-commitments. All law presupposes some kind of lawgiver. That lawgiver is either man or God, and any god you posit presupposes a religious system. There is no such thing then as neutrality. If God is the creator and sustainer of all things, the non-believer is not without bias. And so he says, Vantel says, the Christian should reason accordingly. He says this, and I quote, If God were not absolute, if for him analysis does not have significance prior to and apart from synthesis, that's a gathering of the facts, man would have to interpret the facts for himself. Interpretation of reality cannot be a cooperative enterprise between God and man. We are either metaphysical relativists or metaphysical absolutists. If we are the former, then we're neutral. If the latter, we're biased. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The horns then of the dilemma for anyone claiming neutrality and open-mindedness, which everybody seems to insist on, being open-minded, sometimes Christians and non-Christians alike, is an open universe. To be open-minded requires this open universe, but an open universe cannot admit the absolute. It cannot admit the absolute God. But only those things which deny the absolute. Therefore, open-mindedness must be a closed-mindedness to the idea of the absolute God. So the, abs- so the metaphysical relativist is actually an absolutist. Because he absolutely denies the possibility of the absolute. Now, you're getting your head around this. I'm just, this is all a process of reiteration. This is part of the difficulty with some of these abstract con- concepts, but it will be a process of reiteration here. What happens then is by one a priori sweep of the brush, the neutral thinker who says you need to reason in a neutral fashion and you need to be open-minded has already denied the God of Scripture. He's already said he doesn't exist. He's already presupposed the non-existence of the God we're trying to establish. Assuming in advance then that there is no judgment and no absolute God. 
And yet in apologetic interaction, the very question at issue is the question of metaphysical relativism and metaphysical absolutism. And those who demand and brag about their non-religious, non-biased views and say, I'm appealing to empirical methods and rational principles are begging the question. They are already begging the question. The very assertion of neutrality assumes in advance the truth of the anti-theistic position. This is what Van Til says rather tongue-in-cheek. These considerations have often made me more biased than ever. I feel that it is better to be biased in favor of the absolute and admit my bias than to be biased against him and deny my bias. Is it hard to believe in God? Question mark. It is far harder not to believe in him. And I think this is something of the genius of Van Til's thought. Secondly, the preservation of autonomy. This is uh, Van Til's second key theme. He says that fallen men and women strive to preserve their own autonomy, that is, that they are a law unto themselves. And they will accept nothing without being shown... Those who say they accept nothing without being shown it by reason don't speak truthfully. Why? Because everybody who's thoughtful recognizes we all accept authority in one realm or another. Nobody here, I presume, would claim that they have expertise in every field of human knowledge. And so what we do is we recognize, human society recognizes and maintains the idea of the expert. Otherwise, why would you ever go to the doctor? We accept that there are authorities and experts in other realms, and very often we will submit to their authority. So non-believers consistently submit to authority, just as we submit to an authority. However, the non-believer won't allow... Their idea of authority is in a very limited sense. That is the authority of the expert using autonomous standards of human reasoning. An authority that comes from beyond man, from God, is wholly unacceptable. That's not permissible. That's ruled out of court by definition. Because, why? There is an endless stream of facts forever springing from the realm of pure possibility as time rolls on. For the non-believer for those who don't believe in the triune God of Scripture. They deny that what is occurs by virtue of the plan of God, and so man is confronted with what Van Til describes as a shoreless and bottomless ocean of facts and the ultimacy of the historical process of time and of chaos. And that thought has dominated non-Christian philosophy, particularly since the time of Kant. And so what's happened is, as we've moved on from there in modern philosophy, human thought has become increasingly irrationalistic, hasn't it? You look at existentialism, post-modernity, we see this, this drift towards irrationalism. I mean, the days of uh, Descartes and Spinoza and the rationalists are seen as hopelessly out of date today. When logic is seen as a timeless, impersonal principle, when facts governed by the chaos, Van Til explains that a hopeless situation of self-contradiction is what we then face, relating abstract, baseless laws to totally irrational facts. And this is what he says, and I quote, listen carefully now, I know, it's, I know this is very difficult to concentrate. Do try and concentrate, and you can read over these quotations again later. About chance, he says, no manner of assertion can be made. In its very idea is the irrational. And how are rational assertions to be made about the irrational? If they are to be made, then it must be because the irrational is itself wholly reduced to the rational. That is to say, if the natural man is to make any intelligible assumptions about the world of reality or fact, which, according to him, is what it is for no rational reason at all, then he must make the virtual claim of rationalizing the irrational. 
To be able to distinguish one fact from another fact, he must reduce all time existence, all factuality to immovable, timeless being. But when he has done so, he has killed all individuality and factuality as conceived on his basis. Thus the natural man must on the one hand assert that all reality is non-structural in nature, that's chaos, and on the other hand that all reality is structural in nature, in order to have knowledge and do science and so on. He must even assert on the one hand that all reality is non-structurable, that is you can't establish a structure for it because the uh, process of, of chaos and time is throwing up new facts all of the time, uh, is non-structurable in nature, and on the other hand assert that he himself has structured all of it. Thus all his predication is in the nature of the case self-contradictory. Again, I think this is the genius of what Van Til was trying to point out. And so what philosophers today do, some of them recognizing this fact, is they say, they soften their pronouncements by saying, well, these are perspectives. I have a system, but the system is only for us, our school of thought, relativism. And it collapses then into a, into a radical solipsism, which is isolated minds, isolated irrational particulars. And no possibility of knowing the truth. And that's why we're at the state we are with in terms of post-modernity today. We treat reality as if, the philosophers say, it will behave as it's behaved in the past. And then that by some mysterious somehow, our intellectual assertions about things that appear to us approximate the real world. That's what the philosophers now say. That somehow, we don't know how, that's why Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. Somehow, these abstract laws relate somehow to uh, the materi our material surroundings and that the assertions we're making perhaps approximate the real world, and that's about as far as they go. And so what we are then confronted with in contemporary philosophy is mystery at every turn. And with mystery at every turn, we have then hit what they say, what we have been told we can't have. That is, we can't have religious presuppositions. We can't have a faith system. And so the philosophers become nothing more than prophets and seers, who Vantil says again, tongue-in-cheek, uh, prophets and seers may suggest to us the visions they have seen in the night. And that's what human philosophy is reduced to. And so reality, as taught by modern philosophy, is unknowable. At every turn, systems are just relative to the mind of man, and the philosophers has become the new priest mediating another kind of faith and simply peddling another kind of authority. And if you read Nietzsche, that's exactly what he says about the philosophers. That's why he himself went mad in the end. He didn't believe there could be even meaning in human grammar. Now, Hugh, uh, autonomous man will accept then the word or the authority of the expert from man and by man, but he will not accept a voice beyond man as a voice of authority that comes to man because he's fallen and he's rebelling against his God. And so for Van Til, since the fall, every man is a humanist making himself his own God. Now, Jesus, oh, people may be interested in Jesus. Jesus was a religious expert, so was Buddha. 
Perhaps Muhammad was. These guys and other mystics have a wonderful sense of the numinous, that realm beyond the phenomenal. And perhaps, like any other expert we might consult in medicine or sports fitness or whatever, Jesus can be consulted as an expert with a good sense of the nominal realm that can't be known, that by some super-rational leap or super-logical leap, uh, there may be some access to, an, uh, uh, to a nominal realm that leaves open the possibility of faith, but that God can't be the God of Scripture. And so when we get all excited as Christians, forgive me for being a little bit skeptical about the latest atheist who is now saying he kind of leaves open the possibility of theism, and we start getting all excited about that, I think we're premature. Because fallen man will admit any other kind of God as long as one that doesn't deny his autonomy and his own authority. We saw that last night. To accept authority as authority is seen as a form of insanity. Okay, thirdly, and very quickly, because my time is slipping away here, the weakness of the traditional method as far as Van Til was concerned. And here we come to the comparison. Van Til's central concern in his apologetic was the place of Scripture. And here he was very much in conflict with what we might call the classical method. See, what the, he suggested that the classical method of apologetics tends to go along with fallen man in saying that he is as right as far as he goes in terms of his reasoning, in terms of that view of neutrality and his autonomy, but he needs a little bit more. Now, the Christian apologist, in, 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 in a meaningful sense, of course, is somebody who does accept the authority of God in Scripture. If we don't accept God's authority in Scripture and that he's spoken an infallible word, I don't understand how we can be Christian apologists. We're, we're peddling our own thoughts and our own schema of thought. So the Christian apologist is to defend Christian theism, not theism in general, not some bare idea or abstract idea about God, but the God of Scripture. And Van Til was concerned that the apologist should be concerned not to defend a vague notion of a deity, but the Christ of Scripture, who presents himself to us as creator and redeemer. And if we do no more than this, you see, there are other faith systems that will have, we could reach a formal agreement about the existence of a God, but our discussion is meaningless until we then bring in the idea of revelation and we start talking about what kind of God exists. Van Til was very fond of saying, you can't talk about the, the thought that that God exists without talking about what kind of God exists. Ravi encountered this when he went to speak in, in the Soviet Union. And he kept referring to God in his talk. And somebody, at the hand, uh, somebody put their hand up at the end and said, what, what God are you talking about? They didn't have a theistic Christian conception of God. Given that all reason is by presupposition, that is, we bring a schema or synoptic view of reality in our assessment of facts and evidence, the Christian apologist is obviously presupposing biblical revelation. It's the God of Scripture we're talking about. But it seems that the classical method is obligated to show first theism and then afterward Christianity. Because they're taking logic and facts and everything else for granted that in a sense that they may or may not be created by God. Now think about that for a moment. If we don't approach things that God has spoken with an absolute authority, what we are then saying is Reality and created reality may or may not be created by God. So let's go to the facts. Let's agree formally that we can have logic and reason and so on and so forth and just take that for granted. And now let's try and see if God is the inference to the best explanation. 
Where are we rooting our final authority in such a procedure? The believer and the non-believer then are thus far seen as occupying the same ground. That is, rationalizing the particulars in an original fashion to see if they will lead them to the conclusion of God or not. Now, Van Til had a problem with that. The traditional method does not bring to the table, in his view, Christian theism as as a whole, but begins with an attempt to to, uh, defend a sort of deformed theism, which other deists and perhaps Muslims might be concerned to hold and to prove. And so Van Til criticized it at that that point by saying that the traditional method only grants a mere probability to the truth of Christianity in principle. And that there is a possibility of having meaning and rationality and logic outside of God. And when you get to the point of showing that God is the most probable explanation, then the gap between probability and certainty is, is, is uh, dealt with by an appeal to faith, the heart, and various other appeal, uh, appeals that might be considered irrationalistic. Uh, and again, Van Til was not happy with this. This is what he says. A pro- truly Protestant method of reasoning involves a stress upon the fact That the meaning of every aspect or part of Christian theism depends upon Christian theism as a unit. When Protestants speak of the resurrection of Christ, they speak of the resurrection of him who is the son of God, the eternal word through whom the world was made. The truth of theism is involved in this claim that Christians make with respect to the domain of history. And what is true of the resurrection of Christ is true with respect to all the propositions about historical fact that are made in scripture. No proposition about historical fact is presented for what it really is, he says, until it's presented as part of the system of Christian theism contained in Scripture. To say this is involved in the consideration that all the facts of the created universe are what they are by virtue of the plan of God with respect to them. Any fact in any realm confronted by man is what it is as revelational through and through of the God of the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Christian theism. But if this is true, and it would seem to be the very essence of the biblical point of view to say that it is true, then it follows that the whole claim of Christian theism is in, the que- is in question in any debate about any fact. Christian theism must be presented as the light in terms of which any proposition about any fact receives its meaning. Very involved statement. Very long statement. What is he saying? Look, he's saying, no fact of history can be understood in isolation from the Christian worldview as a whole. He says the whole of the claim of Christian theism is in question in any debate about any fact. Because to know a fact is to relate it to an ultimate frame of reference. So very often Christians think, for example, that we can talk about hedgehogs and horses and trees and the sky and everything else as though there is an absolutely common area of knowledge there that we share. Vantil's saying we don't because... Even though we may have a formal agreement about what a hedgehog is, the non-believer and the believer disagree about the true nature of the hedgehog, i.e. created and sustained by God or not. So, summing up very quickly, Dr. Barnson, one of Van Til's finest students, I think, highlighted then seven key areas in which the traditional method differs from Van Til's insight. Number one, he says, the traditional method assumes that fallen man can and ought to be intellectually autonomous and neutral in approaching the truth claims of Christianity. That we can assume an, an idea of neutrality and an idea of the self-attesting nature of human reason. Secondly, the traditional method, uh, method assumes, he says, that presuppositions are hypotheses to be tested by factual observations rather than foundational assumptions in terms of which a hypothesis is tested. 
Now, you see, there is a difference between presuppositions and a hypothesis. Our presuppositions are our most foundational and basic beliefs that govern how we are going to understand the facts and govern uh, uh, whether we believe a hypothesis is credible or not. See, if I said to you, I was coming to breakfast this morning, a pig flew across the, uh, the quad, you are going to judge the, the, uh, the feasibility of my statement on the basis of a set of presuppositions you have about reality. And you will test the hypothesis, pigs fly, on the basis of your governing assumptions about reality. Thirdly, the traditional method assumes that there, is, there are group observational common facts that stand outside an interpretative theory by which we can test hypotheses. That is that there are common facts, common ideas, common notions that we can simply say, well, we will test the Christian supposition on the basis of this is agreed commonality about fact, which again denies that fact and meaning are tied together in terms of a scheme of thought. Fourthly, it assumes the unbeliever, in terms of his own philosophical perspective, has intelligible standards and concepts by which to judge, test, and verify biblical Christianity. In other words, we're saying to the non-believer that they can have logic and reason and rationality and math and language all for free, and that they can have those as intelligible concepts without God by which they call into question the Creator God. Fifthly, it says, it uses, the traditional method uses all of the above as a basis for a line of argument that would lead the non-believer, if he would just be reasoning consistently, if only his IQ were sharp enough, from unbelief to embrace the totally antithetical conclusions of Christianity. <coughs> He's saying that the classical model, this is Van Til's view, is that if you take it as it stands, what you are saying to the non-believer is if you were sharp enough and bright enough and could use logic effectively enough, you would become a Christian. Sixthly, he, is, he says that it assumes that Christianity can be defended in a piecemeal fashion as though there are truths that can be properly understood outside of the overall worldview. And seven, that the traditional method proposes only to show that Christianity is probable rather than infallibly true on the authority of Christ. Grants only a probability for the claims of Christianity, and yet the whole idea of probability, as I was discussing with some of you gentlemen after yesterday's session, is only meaningful on the basis of a God of order by which probability can be calculated. If there is no structure and order to reality, then you can't calculate the probability of anything taking place. Probability as a concept is only meaningful on the presupposition of God. And yet the, the rationalistic model, Van Til says, is assuming that Christianity is merely probable and may be the best explanation, but there's a possibility that it isn't because we're testing it on the basis of independent, autonomous human reasoning. I can see you're all very tired, totally exhausted, and you don't even have a glass of water to sip. <laughs> so Van Til says in the end that there's only one route to rationality and meaning, and that means that man himself, as a fallen creature, does discover truth in the phenomenal realm, that's the world of his senses, but he does so in spite of himself. That is, that the fallen man exists as a parasite on Christianity. That is, he sucks the presuppositional blood from the Christian worldview in order that he can have science and reason and language and make sense of his experience whilst denying the foundation of it. 
And science is a perfect illustration of this. You can't account for the success of science except on the basis that this world is created and governed by God's law order, giving regularity to natural causes. And then materialist scientist goes about science on this basis, and yet on his suppositions, if he were consistent with them, he'd have no knowledge whatsoever. He could have no knowledge whatsoever. There would be no basis for uniformity in nature or the validity of universal, invariant, immaterial laws of logic. There would not be minds, there would only be brains that are products of the chaos. Random collocations of, ap- of atoms with no basis for saying one view is valid and another view is invalid. That scientific conclusion is invalid. On what basis? If your mind is a brain that is atomically determined by the chaos. There is no such thing as chance. There's only absolute atomic determinism. Chance is just a word we use to describe our ignorance about causes. In scripture, Christ speaks then with a self-authentic authority. And I read the passage from John to ask this question. To whom does Christ appeal to justify his claims about himself? Are we not to be imitators of Christ, is Van Til's question. Are we not to be imitators of the Apostle Paul? Christ speaks on the authority of the Father who sent him. And Jesus says, as as my Father sent me, so send I you. And one of the things about the classical traditional method is you have to become an absolute jujitsu expert in all areas of interna- inter- intellectual fighting. Because you have got to start trying to construct a, co- a more comprehensive idea and understanding of the facts than the non-believer, otherwise he's going to beat you every time. Not on this view. On this view, we don't even allow that the non-believer has an intelligible concept to start with. (laughs) Van Til then beautifully said in his perhaps his most succinct synopsis, anti-theism presupposes theism. To be an anti-theist, you need theism. Jesus says, I am that I am. I am the way, the truth, the life. This is what Van Til writes, and I quote, There are no laws of truth, goodness or beauty above him to which he need or even can make reference. All law in the phenomenal and in the nominal realm alike proceeds from him. Again, there are no facts of the world of space and time that act as independent and therefore as a possible or actual refractory power below him. There is no such thing, he says, as pure contingency, pure chaos. The very idea of possibility, so far as a man deals with it, gets its meaning from God as the self-referential, self-contained I am, for he speaks in Christ. It is this God of pure inwardness in terms of which the Christian interprets himself and his cosmic environment. In other words, we can reduce all human philosophies and their faulty dilemmas to one, the assumption that rests on the belief that man is the ultimate reference and point of it, uh, uh, in, in terms of his interpretative activity, the delusion of human autonomy. In other words, the choice comes down to this, the self-authenticating man or the self-authenticating Christ. That's what Van Til says. It is either God and his Christ as our ultimate criterion for truth, or it is man who is the supreme court of the universe. And no man brings man into judgment. Who brings the autonomous man into judgment? Nobody. God brings men into judgment. Man makes himself then God. And so the non-Christian reasons consistently 
when he reasons from his autonomy and self-attesting authority to deny the Christian story. He doesn't follow the facts wherever they lead. He has already determined where they're going to lead before he comes to the facts. In fact, as Vantor says, he destroys the facts before he gets to them anyway. Because with no pre-interpreted scheme and no law order, there are no facts. There are only irrational particulars that he must rationalize into facts. It appears then, says Van Til, that if there is to be any intelligible encounter between the Christian and non-Christian, it must be in terms of two mutually exclusive visions that each entertains. To appeal to the law of contradiction and or facts or a combination of these, apart from the relation that these sustain to the totality vision of either, the believer or un- of the believer or unbeliever, is to beat the air. It is well to say that he who would reason must presuppose the validity of the laws of logic, but if we say nothing more basic than this, then we are still beating the air. See, the laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, doesn't give you anything more than P is not non-P. It doesn't supply foundational premises. It's a tool we use for reasoning. And where that tool will take us depends on our ultimate suppositions and presuppositions about reality. It's not enough to talk about foundational laws of logic. So Van Til says, the ultimate question deals with the foundation of the validity of the laws of logic. We have not reached bottom until we have seen that every logical activity in which man engages is in the service of his totality vision. Christ, then, is Lord for Van Til. And there is no distinction in terms of human thought. There is, it is not non-overlapping magisterium. Christ's lordship extends to every area. We shan't talk about special revelation. I did that yesterday. We haven't got any time. Bantil then, in summary, takes what we might call, in terms of the presuppositional argument, a transcendental method. God is seen as alone self-explanatory, and I talked about that last night. All the reasons for his existence, his activity is contained within himself. No human being is self-explanatory, only God is. Because God alone is self-explanatory, he alone can speak with absolute authority. That's why the scripture says in the psalmist, the psalmist says, in your light we see light. All the facts of the universe then are derivative because God is the source of all possibility and all factuality. And if things are not what they are by virtue of the plan of God, then God and man exists in a common environment. The facts exist then under their own power, and God is at best a religious expert with slightly more experience than you and me in terms of time to interpret the facts. If if the Christian adopts the same ground as the unbeliever regarding the ultimate point of reference, Van Til says he can never show that the non-Christian view of reality destroys all knowledge. And Van Til's model and his genius was to challenge the non-Christian by showing that only on the presupposition of the triune God as the final reference point in human predication, that's naming, defining, differentiating, he says, do we not annihilate experience itself and destroy all the facts before we get to them? This is done, Van Til says, by ultimately showing that man is a rebel by doing an internal critique and showing that the non-Christian method throughout history destroys human experience. And in fact, you can find those acknowledgments from the philosophers themselves. Just go and read the empiricism of David Hume. Christ, as creator of man and his environment, does not appeal then to human reason as, its, as an ultimate authority, but speaks on his own authority. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. 
in constructing a system of thought, the non-Christian and the Christian then have two divergent points of view. The common ground is found. People often think that presuppositional thought in terms of thought means there's no common ground. All the ground is common because we live in God's world, on God's territory, and his signs are everywhere. This belongs to God. There's no neutral ground, but all ground is common ground. Things to be known in the non-Christian worldview must be known wholly. You need an omniscience without resorting to the irrational. You need an omniscient knowledge, which, which of course is impossible for finite man in a temporal chance universe, which he posits, and complete comprehension being impossible, thus man says now, in terms of the philosophers, we have a system, a perspective, that exists only for me, or for this group who choose to adopt this particular system. So Van Til's apologetic, instead of beginning from below, in a direct method, he says, begins from above. Not in the sense that we begin as God, in terms of temporal thought, but our ultimate referent, our ultimate standard for truth, is the presupposition of God. God does not present to us, in the scriptures as we read them, an independent ontological, cosmological, uh, teleological argument of himself. In the beginning, God. Now, we can build and use classical arguments, Van Til uh, said we can, and we can use evidences, as long as we acknowledge, he says, that we do so on Christian presuppositions. Because actually, my design argument and my causal argument are presupposing a Christian idea of causality and a Christian idea of design anyway. And an ontological argument that doesn't presuppose the God of Scripture only proves pantheism. Go and talk to LT about that. Van Til writes then in conclusion, and this is a summary, and I finish with this, unless reason and fact are themselves interpreted in terms of God, they are unintelligible. If God is not presupposed, reason is a pure abstraction that has no contact with fact, and fact is a pure abstraction that has no contact with reason. Reason and fact cannot be brought into fruitful union with one another except on the presupposition of the existence of God and his control over the universe. So how do we reason apologetically with the non-believer? We do this. We invite the non-believer. Well, we say, well, let me step into your worldview for a moment, your perspective. I'm not going to pretend you're neutral and I'm neutral. I'm going to step into your worldview. Let me show you what happens when you, when you take the religious presuppositions that you have. You destroy all knowledge. You destroy all intelligibility. You destroy the facts before you get to them. Now, let me invite you. Come and put my spectacles on. Come and look at reality through the Christian worldview. Look at it through the Christ of Scripture and see if it does not make entire sense of the human condition and provide a foundation for intelligible human experience. That is, it provides the preconditions of intelligible human experience. Van Til's method then was one where he felt, he felt he was seeking to bring glory to God by an approach that was consistent with what the Bible teaches about God. Consistent with what Christ says about himself, that we are saved and faith is a gift not of reason, but the gift of God. Where unless the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the blind, they will not see the truth. And so what makes Van Til's approach, I think, very attractive is it is incredibly humble. It doesn't say, look, if you were as intelligent and smart as me and reason from the facts properly, you would be a Christian. It recognizes that the person's whole perspective is wrong and he looks at the facts wrong and so everything, all his conclusions are wrong-headed. So Van Til says what we do is we take the research and the knowledge of the non-believer and we just turn it right side up. And then we can talk about science and facts and everything else. 
Man is God's, made in God's image has broken covenant and is obviously hostile towards God. And so the problem is sin, not a lack of evidence. It is not a lack of evidence and a lack of rationality that means people are not Christians. Now, if we're biblical and we believe scripture, that has to be our confidence. It's because of ethical hostility to God. The sinner knows God, but his mind has become darkened. And we need the Holy Spirit to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But as we invite the believer to step into our worldview, they are capable of following what we're saying to show, as Paul says, where is the wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the disputer of this world? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Christianity, Van Til says, can be shown to be not just as good as or even better than the non-Christian position, but the only position that does not make nonsense of human experience. That, in a nutshell, not so much of a nutshell, is the apologetics of Van Til. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.